It's Philippians 4, 10 through 13. Please stand for the reading of God's word. I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you have renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you have been concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I am not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Beautiful morning, isn't it? I can sense summer is on its way, which is great. I'm excited about that. Well, we are plotting our way through Paul's letter to the Philippians, getting close to the end. And we're in this section of Philippians where we're talking about these habits of the heart and mind that benefit us as we try to live out the Jesus life. I've been pointing us to this proverb over the last three Weeks, Proverbs 4.23, above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. We're talking about the heart, the, the core of us, that inner place where our emotions come from, our motivations, our values, our thinking, really just the core of who we are. And the analogy has been this. It's a wellspring of life. I've shown you this picture. The heart is, is like a, the source of a river, the source of a, of a well. It's that deep underground place where, where this water emerges that goes out and then becomes a river. And really, that is what the heart is. Everything flows from our hearts. We take our hearts everywhere. We cannot leave them behind. They absolutely impact everything about our lives. And so the command is, therefore, guard your heart. Keep watch over your heart. And what we've been doing over these last three weeks is we're looking at what are the threats? What are the enemies to our hearts? We've talked about enemies like anxiety, or impure and negative thinking. Today we'll talk about the enemy of discontentment. And what we're trying to do is develop these habits of the heart. We're trying to train our hearts and minds towards, towards postures and practices that will help us to thrive in following Jesus. So we've talked about taking anxiety, right? And, and, and the habit is present our cares to God in prayer, constant prayer, lifting up our concerns to him. Or last week, these, the, these impure negative thoughts, the, the practice is to focus on what is true and what is good and what is praiseworthy. And today we'll talk about this threat of discontentment and the call is to learn to be content in the circumstances of our lives. So let's take a look today talking about contentment. And we'll talk about discontentment as well in a couple minutes. But let me just jump into the beginning of this passage. Uh, Verse 10 sets the context for why Paul is going to talk about contentment. Let me read it again. He says, I rejoiced greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. When he says, "I'm, I'm glad that you've renewed your concern, he's referring to the fact that they have sent someone, Epaphroditus, one of their own people, to him and brought financial support. 
Epaphroditus has brought money, financial gifts to Paul to support his ministry. Okay, look at verse 18. At the, uh, chapter 4, verse 18, Paul says, I have received full payment and have more than enough. I'm amply supplied now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. All right, so just a reminder um, of this letter. Remember, you can see Philippi up in the top middle in uh, modern-day Greece-ish. Uh, Paul is in Rome in the top left. Uh, he's in prison there. And so they haven't had correspondence. There's no email back then in case you didn't know that can't text. And so it's been a long time. But what the Philippians is, they sent one of their own, Epaphroditus, with some financial contribution. And so he has come to Rome. And that's really the occasion of this letter. And Paul is, has just received uh, this. He is, he's seen that they have renewed their concern for him. And, and what he feels a burden in this passage, I think, is, is to communicate two things. One, he's very grateful for the gift. <laughs> I'm really grateful for your support, especially he's grateful because what it means about what God is doing in their hearts, that he's creating generosity in their hearts. So he wants to communicate, I'm grateful, but he also wants to communicate this, but I don't actually need the gift. Yes, I'm grateful, but just so you know, I don't need the financial support because why? Because I've learned to be content in whatever circumstance I'm in. So that, that's what he's trying to communicate here. So let's look at what he has to say about himself in verse 11 through 12. All right, let me read this again. I'm not saying this because I'm in need. Right? He's saying I, I don't actually need the gift. For I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. So Paul is he's articulating the various kinds of circumstances, the full spectrum of circumstances that he has found himself in. Sometimes I've been in times of plenty. Sometimes I've been in times of want. Sometimes I've been well-fed. Sometimes I've gone hungry. Sometimes I've, been, I've experienced wealth. Sometimes I've experienced poverty. And anyone who's ever read the book of Acts or has read the letters of Paul's knows that Paul really experienced it all, didn't he? I mean, anything that a human being could experience in his, the course of his missionary journeys, he had experienced it all. I thought I'd give us a sample of some of his experience that he gives us in um, 2 Corinthians. Here's just a short list of some of the things he experienced. He says, three times I was beaten with rods. Uh, Once I was pelted with stones. We just read that one in Axios last week. Uh, Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. Wow, I'd love to hear more about that. Uh, I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. Okay? So he has experienced all kinds of, of what I would call poverty or need and want. And of course, we know that he's saying here, there's other times where I've experienced plenty. In my ministry, I've, I've been welcomed into nice homes, and there's been times where there's been plenty of resources for me. All that to say, I've, I've really experienced the whole spectrum. So let me just give you a, a, a picture of what Paul is saying. Okay? So he's saying, I've, I've experienced the whole spectrum of what I'll say, poverty on the left and wealth. He uses words in this passage, need on the left and hungry and want, and on the right, plenty, well-fed, abound, right? And he's saying, I've, I've seen it all. I've been on every part of that spectrum. And he is talking in this passage primarily uh, materially, right? Like actual financial provision, material possession, and, and resources that I need. And we all could say, you know, gosh, we've found ourselves on various 
parts of this spectrum. Some of us have had times where there's lots of resource and there's lots of money and there's just, it's, there's a lot of financial freedom and other times where things are tighter. Uh, we've probably never experienced what Paul's experienced, but we could say, yeah, absolutely. There's been times where I found myself in different parts of this spectrum, materially, financially. And what I want to do this morning is broaden uh, the category beyond material and say in all sorts of areas of our lives, we at any given time find ourselves on a spectrum between poverty and wealth. So for instance, we could think about our lives relationally, right? Sometimes we're in a time of relational wealth. I feel like I've got friends, I've got this crew, people call me, it's good. I feel there's really meaningful friendships in my life. And other times, maybe it feels like, I'm kind of lonely right now. I feel like I'm going through a time of relational poverty. No one's calling me, and uh, I just feel lonely. Or it might be, you know, a romance relationship where there's, there's times where, gosh, there's a beautiful romance in my life, and that's going well. And other times where it's like, I feel, I feel like I want. There's something that I want that I lack in that area. Uh, we could talk about it in terms of our physical lives, right? There's times where I'm healthy. Uh, there's times where I... Uh, I like how I look, <laughs> how I feel good, and then there's times where I'm sick, or I have some disease, or uh, I don't like how I look and how I feel right now, right? And um, we could even talk about, like, just freedom. There's times in my life where I feel like there's a lot of freedom in my life. I have lots of space to pursue the things I love to do, where I can pursue my hobbies, I can get time alone, and it just feels like there's a wealth of freedom and opportunity for me. And other times we'd say, I feel like there's a poverty of space in my life. Young parents, right? This is a season of poverty of space. I don't get to play basketball. I don't get to surf like you used to. Or, or you're going through a season where work is really busy. It's like I just, there's, when it comes to the space to do the things like, I feel like I'm in a time of, of poverty in that. Even gifts, talents, opportunities. Sometimes you're like, I feel like I'm, I'm firing, right? I feel like I'm using my gifts. People appreciate what I'm doing. It's just, it, there's, it's just a beautiful time of plenty. And other times you're like, I feel like I'm not using my gifts. I, I don't even know if I, what my gifts are and... And whatever. So all that to say, there's a, a million categories that we could talk about where we, at any given time, find ourselves on this spectrum between poverty and wealth. And for some of us, the material one's a big one, but for some of us, it's something else that's big. So I think I want you to keep any of those categories in mind as we talk about contentment today. And Paul is saying, I have learned contentment no matter where I find myself on this spectrum. Now, what is contentment? He says that word twice. I've learned to be content. I think, very simply put, uh, contentment is being satisfied with what you have, right? Contentment is being satisfied with what you have. It's, it's living joyfully with your life exactly as it is, not as you want it to be. And I was thinking this, I think contentment is, is a real underdog virtue, it's a very underappreciated, kind of under-the-radar virtue, but it is such an important and, empower, and, and powerful virtue to cultivate. And I thought it'd be helpful to talk about the opposite for a couple minutes of contentment, which is, of course, discontentment, or I guess you could just say discontent. Um, but let's just talk about discontentment, which I think is one of these threats to the heart that we've been talking about. And let's just start, let's just acknowledge, uh, we live in Orange County, okay? 
2018. We live in a place of plenty, of abundance, where we have resources, possessions, more than almost any human being has had in the history of the world. And yet I think we would all say in the midst of all this plenty, there are so many people living their lives with hearts that are full of discontentment. Hearts are saying, whatever my life is right now is not enough. I want more, right? I want better, bigger, faster, whatever it is, I want more. And discontentment is something that we can struggle with in the land of plenty. And I was thinking this week, you know, discontentment lies right at the heart of the fall of humanity, the original story of Adam and Eve. If you think about it, discontentment's right at the center of that. Let me show you a beautiful picture of the Garden of Eden. Um, So God puts Adam and Eve in this beautiful place, right? And they have a relationship with him. There is no sin. They have one another. Um, They have every tree, every plant that they could ever want. It's, It's paradise on earth, literally, with one limitation, right? There's one tree. Don't eat that tree. Freedom, all of this stuff, everything you could ever ask for, but stay away from that tree. And at the heart of the fall is in their hearts this posture of discontentment. I am not satisfied with all this good stuff. It's good. I believe it. The problem is it's just not enough. It's not enough. I want more. I want whatever that thing's going to give me. And so rather than be content with all the good in their lives, they were discontent with the one limit placed on them. And I think, man, here we are now, thousands and thousands of years later, 2018 in Orange County. And in the midst of plenty, the human heart continues to look out and say, not enough. I want more. And of course, um, we're encountering an um, advertisement industry that every day is banking on the discontentment of the human heart, right? That's, and I'm not, I'm not knocking that. That's just the reality. So we have these messages that are telling us, you're right, it's not enough. This is what you need. I don't think social media has been helpful. Social media feeds into this as we look at pictures of people living these great lives. And then we compare how we feel to what they're presenting on the screen. And it leaves us discontent. And this is kind of an aside, but I was thinking this week, there's almost always something comparative to discontentment, right? I mean, it's almost always in comparison to somebody. I I don't, I'm not, my stuff is not enough in comparison to somebody else. There's no phrase that says the grass is always green, right? The grass is always what? Greener, right? It's, It's in comparison. I was thinking, most of us are happy with our homes. We're content, just as an example, with our homes until we go to that dinner party, right? And we see that home, we see that kitchen, and we see that yard, and we see that living space. And then we come back, and there's a level of discontent, right? And we were content before we left. If you were to take our house and us, and you were just to drop us in a developing country with that house, we'd be perfectly content with that house, right? But it's almost always in comparison, so I, I've realized a very interesting fact about us in the last couple of years. And here it is. Almost nobody in this room considers themselves really rich. Okay? As I talk to people, almost nobody in this room considers themselves really rich. There's lots of people in this room that consider other people in this room really rich. 
But almost no one identifies as really rich. Rich, maybe. Really rich, no. And the reality is, okay, if you took the world's population, I've done this before, and you put us on a spectrum from that wall, you made a line from that wall back there to this window, from the world's poorest to the world's richest, pretty much every one of us in this room is slammed up against that window (laughs) in the top 1% to 5% of the world's wealthiest people, okay? You may be cash poor right now. But in terms of the resources that you have, we are all in the 1% to 5%. And yet none of us identifies as really rich. And the reason is is obvious, right? Because rich is relative, right? We're always comparing ourselves to the people who have 15 to 20% more than we. Almost none of us compare ourselves to people with 20% less than us. I never think about the people who have 20% less than me. I'm always thinking about the person. And there's always someone who's 20% more than me. All that to say... There, there's such a, a comparative nature to this. And, and again, I think we play that comparison game, not just in material things, but in, in, in those other categories that I mentioned, right? My job, my job was enough until I saw what that person is doing. And that tapped into my sense of not feeling enough. I, I can remember this horrible moment. I was driving in the car a couple years ago, and someone I know was on the radio, okay? I heard their voice on the radio. And it tapped into, oh, wow. That person's on the radio. I'm not on the radio. Like, I was fine, and now I'm not fine. I'm discontent with my job. My kids were enough, right? Until I saw where those kids are going to college, right? And now they're not enough all of a sudden. My body was enough until I saw that person in their bathing suit. And now all of a sudden, it doesn't feel enough. Okay, that's just sort of an aside. But there's, there's this comparative nature to it. It's all relative. But discontentment, it, what it does is it looks out at the circumstances. And it says, the problem is out there. <laughs> right? This is not enough. And it is insatiable. Because the reality is the problem is not out there. Discontentment is a matter of the heart. It is in here, and we'll take it wherever we go. We'll take it to whatever circumstance we go to. So back to our proverb, guard your heart. What does discontentment do to the heart? It's a threat to the heart. What does it do? It robs us. It robs the heart of joy, doesn't it? Of satisfaction. It leaves it restless, unhappy. Sometimes we don't like those. We'll say bored, right? I'm not discontent with my kitchen. I'm just bored with my kitchen, right? Just bored with the yard, right? But it's a restlessness and it, it robs the heart of joy and satisfaction. And it is, it is, I said, it's insatiable. It's never satisfied because the problem is actually not out there. The problem is in here. I can remember about six years ago, my wife and I started looking for a home to buy. We had our second kid and we were our space was getting smaller, at least by, you know, first world standards. And, um, and we spent two years looking for a home, putting offers on homes, watching ourselves slowly get priced out of the market as it went up. And that was a, not a fun experience. But there was a part of me that was just living for the home, when I would get the home. And there was this discontentment that had built up with my life, thinking, if I just get the home, this will go away. And finally, we got the home, and we loved the home. And that feeling went away in my heart for at least a week or two. (laughs) And then I said, you know, it it would be nice to redo the yard. And it was really nice to redo the yard. But it's, it's insatiable. And it impacts our relationships, right? Because of the comparison, it can leave us jealous, envious of people that we love 
And ultimately, it impacts our relationship with God because what we're saying to God is, you know what, God, you are not enough. What you're providing is not enough. And so it is this threat to the heart. So what does Paul have to say? What does Paul have to say about guarding our hearts from that? How does he do it? Let's take a look at these short verses here of contentment. Uh, The first thing I want to point out is um, this great word in verse 11 and verse 12, the word learned. Verse 11 says, I have learned to be content. Verse 12, I have learned the secret of being content. I love that word learned. Meaning, hey, this wasn't something that was automatic to me. Contentment wasn't automatic. That wasn't just downloaded into my heart when I became a follower of Jesus. No, no, this is something I've had to learn over time through trial and error. There's a, there's a training of my heart. There's a disciplining of my heart. It's taken time. It has not been easy for me. I love that. But he says, over time, whatever I'm going through, I have learned the secret of being content. Now, what is the secret, Paul? <laughs> Well, he gives it to us in verse 13. Take a look at this famous verse. Here's the secret that I've learned. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Hey, that's my secret. Now, let's real quickly, that verse gets taken out of context all the time, right? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, right? You see it in athletic, right? We're going to win this championship. Why? Because we can do all things. We're going to climb this mountain. Why? Because we're going to do all things. Clearly, Paul, what Paul means in the context is when he says, I can do all things, what he means is whatever life throws at me, right? Whether plenty or want, I can go through it and I can go through it with contentment. So that's what he means by that phrase. How do you do it, Paul? How do you go through all these things with contentment? Well, here it is. Through him who strengthens me. Or, Or more literally, I am strong in the one who strengthens me. This is my secret, Paul says, a radical dependence on Jesus Christ. It's my connection with Jesus. It's my dependence on him. It's my drawing from my relationship with him. That's what enables me to go through all of these things and to still be content. It's Jesus. Duh, simple enough, right? But that's my secret, total dependence on Jesus. And there's something interesting about this. Um, What New Testament scholars will tell us is that in using the word contentment, Paul is tapping into a a virtue in the first century Greco-Roman world, okay? Especially with the philosophers of the day, like the Stoics. You guys have heard of the Stoics before? Okay, the Stoic philosophers, they prized contentment. And what they meant by contentment was the ability to go through the ups and downs of life with an even keel. And we still use that word like that person's stoic, right? They, can just, they just kind of move through it. And for them, the secret of contentment was self-sufficiency, okay? You need to learn not to be dependent on your circumstances. You need to learn not to be dependent on other people. You need to tap into your own inner resources and resolve. And through self-sufficiency, you can go through life storms and, and, and make a clear path. And Paul is drawing on that idea, but he's turning it on his head. He's saying, I too can go through whatever life throws at me. But for me, the secret is not self-sufficiency. For me, the secret is Christ-sufficiency. For me, the secret is actually total dependency on another person. I am not independent. I don't draw my own inner resources. I am completely dependent on another person who strengthens me, Jesus Christ. That's my secret. Make sense? 
Okay, I, I want to step back for a second from this verse and think about some of the things that Paul has said in this letter so far about his relationship with Jesus, all right? Chapter 1, the context is he's in prison in Rome. I would call that a time of poverty. <laughs> he has poverty of freedom, right? Uh, all sorts of poverty. And he is facing a trial where he may be released or he may be executed. So it's a, a really tough context. But here's what he says in the midst of that context. For me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. And we talked about that verse. He says, for me, to live equals Christ. And I, I had said months ago, everyone has to answer that, fill in that blank. For me, to live is what? What gives your life a sense of meaning and purpose and satisfaction? Paul says, for me, the answer is Jesus. Okay? Jesus is my life. Jesus is where my heart draws its significance from. So yeah, I'm in prison, and yeah, I might die. That's okay. I have Jesus in prison. And for me, life is all about Jesus. So I'm not losing my life, whatever happens here. Let me go to chapter 3. Here the context is Paul is reminding uh, the Philippians about how much he lost in, in coming to faith in Jesus. And you've got to remember, he was this Jewish Pharisee. He was, a, he was one of the ruling Pharisees of the day. So he had wealth. He had, uh, he had status in the Jewish community. He had comforts. He had uh, reputation and respect. And he lost all of that in becoming a follower of Jesus. But this is what he says in that context. But I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. He says, yeah, I've lost a lot of things, but guess what? For me, there is something in my life that is of surpassing worth. It is better than any circumstance or any relationship or anything, and it's the surpassing worth of Jesus Christ. And if I have Jesus and have to lose everything else, I still have Jesus. I still have what is most valuable to me. So in all this, he is saying, Jesus is my treasure. Jesus is what I live for. Jesus is what gives my life a sense of significance. Jesus is what gives my heart a sense of satisfaction and contentment. And here's the thing. Paul's modeling this, but here's the thing. If you make Jesus your treasure, if you make him the, the, the source of your heart's satisfaction, then your heart can always be satisfied. Your heart can always be content because you can never lose the thing that makes your heart content. But if you make something else that, if you make your job that, if you make money that, if you make relationships that, if you make your own personal freedom or your own health, if you make those things that, then your heart will always be threatened with discontentment because at any moment you might lose the thing that brings your heart a sense of satisfaction and significance and contentment. Make sense? So um, let me show you a really awesome diagram. Um, so I think, you know, just to, to try to give you a, you know, a picture of this, um, for Paul, he's saying, this is my life, okay? This is how I view my life. This is me, and at the center of my heart is Jesus. He's my treasure. He's my source of satisfaction. He's my source of strength. He's the thing that strengthens me. Outside of that, is all this stuff in my life, okay? There's money, there's houses, there's relationships, there's my physical health, there's you name it. Everything else that makes up the stuff of my life. Um, some of it's great, some of it's hard. 
It's, it's the stuff of my life. But inside my heart is Jesus. It's just stuff. It's just, it's part of my life, but it's not at the heart of what gives me a sense of satisfaction. Sometimes that stuff feels like it's plenty. It's, it's abounding in my life. Uh, other times, it feels like I'm going through seasons of poverty, of, of want and need. But at no point does anything change in here because Jesus hasn't gone anywhere through any of this. That's, that's my secret. I can do any of that, whether poverty or wealth, through the one who I treasure and the one who strengthens me, regardless of my circumstance. So what I want to do is I want to I end um, by looking at two passages that talk about how Paul would have us navigate times of poverty and how he would nav- have us navigate times of wealth, all right? And um, what he says in this passage, right, he says, uh, I've learned the secret of being content in both poverty and in wealth, right? And most of us think that when we think about contentment, we're like, times of poverty, that's when I need to learn how to be content, right? I don't have what I want, so I need to be content. Paul's saying, actually, I've learned how to be content in poverty, but I've also learned how to be content in wealth. And actually, wealth can be a really challenging time to be content as well. Wealth and poverty can both be trials. They're different kinds of trials. Poverty is maybe a more obvious trial, but wealth presents its own trials towards contentment, which many of us in this room know full well. And Paul's saying, I've learned the secret in, in either one of those. So I want to end by, let's look at a, a, how he would have us navigate poverty and then how he would have us navigate wealth. So for poverty, you don't have to turn, but um, I'm thinking of a, of a passage in 2 Corinthians where Paul describes his own experience of poverty. Okay, this is the story about his thorn in the flesh. Remember that? Where um, he was doing amazing ministry for God. And so there's always a temptation for him to become arrogant, to become prideful. And so God brought this thorn in the flesh into his life. Um, he calls it a messenger of Satan. And we, no one knows what it is. I, I assume it's some sort of physical ailment. Uh, many people suggest it was um, uh, bad eyesight, and there's good reasons to think that. We don't know. But I would call it a, an experience of poverty, of want, of need. There, he did not have a fullness of, of health or something that he wanted. And so just watch what happens here. He says this. To keep me from becoming proud, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me, right? So he's experiencing what I'll just call this this time of, of a certain kind of poverty, of want. And he's asking God, please, Lord Jesus, please change the circumstance. Please bring me back to a place of, of wealth and, and health in this, in this way. And Jesus' response, as many of you know, is this. But he said to me, here it is. He said, no, first, no, I'm not going to take this from you. My grace is enough, or some translations, it's sufficient. But the word is enough. My grace is enough for you. Because my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. Paul's saying, I've learned the secret of being content in poverty. And here it was, is to learn that in the midst of this poverty, Jesus could step into my situation and say, you know what? My grace alone is enough for you. You don't need my grace plus your health. You don't need my grace plus your wealth. My grace alone is enough. 
And that was painful, I am sure, for Paul. But he learned, okay, in times of poverty, I draw on Jesus and say, I don't need these things. I sure feel like I need these things. But you and your grace alone are enough. So for those of us who are, would experience, right now you're experiencing life like this, okay? You're, you're going through what you would call a time of poverty. On, on some area of your life, feels like, ah, that just, I don't like circumstance. I'm not saying anything you haven't heard. But this is an opportunity, and I know it's a painful opportunity, but it's an opportunity for Jesus to step into your life and say, I am enough for you. In fact, these things have been removed possibly so that you could learn in a deeper way that I am enough for you. And my grace is all that you need. You actually have all that you need right now. I know it doesn't feel like it. I know it feels like you need a bunch of things to change, but you don't. I am all that you need. And I, I'm, I, I have for you to, to begin to learn that in a deeper level through this season of poverty. So that's the poverty. Now let me end with how would he have us navigate seasons of plenty? Okay, how do we find contentment in seasons of plenty? Uh, I'm going to take you to 1 Timothy. This is a passage where he speaks directly to those who are wealthy. All right? He's thinking physically, materially. One of the best comments on wealth I've ever heard, this, these couple verses. Paul says this to Timothy. Command those who are rich in this present world. FYI, that's all of us in this room. Okay? Command those who are rich in this present world. Here it is. Not to to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to be good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. So for those of us who, this is life right now. Man, I just feel like life is, I'm in abundance right now. Here's Paul's words to us. Here's, the, here's how you learn to be content. First, he says, all this stuff, don't become arrogant. Don't, that is, don't put your identity in any of this stuff. When you look at your job that's thriving and your house that's beautiful and, and, and things that are going well and your friends that are, don't ever think, ah, I did that. Yes, I look at that and it makes me feel better than the next. But no, 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 no. All of this is a gift, he says. So don't, don't become proud. And then he says, and don't fix your hope on these things, right? Don't put your security in that bank account. He says, don't fix your hope in, in wealth, which is so uncertain because this can change to that in a heartbeat, right? Any minute it could change that. So don't, don't put any security in it. Instead, he says, put your hope in God. And then he says something beautiful about God. He says, put your hope in God who richly provides us with all of this stuff for what? For our enjoyment, which is to say, practice gratitude. God has given you all these things and he's given them to you for your enjoyment. Are you experiencing a time of plenty? Don't feel guilty. Feel grateful. God has given you this. He wants you to enjoy the good gifts he gives. So be grateful. Practice gratitude. Don't practice guilt. Practice gratitude for all these things. And then finally he says, command them to be generous. And willing to share, which is say, hold this stuff loosely, give it out as, as often as you can as a way of saying this, I don't, this stuff doesn't own me. Um, this is God's gifts. I give it how I will. That is, I think, a starting point for how we learn to practice contentment in times of plenty. So there it is. Guard your heart 
For it is a wellspring of life. There's this threat of discontentment. And so we want to practice. We want to learn the secret of contentment. And if I could leave you with a word um, that we would place over our hearts daily. It's a word that I've said a couple times today. It would be this word. Enough. Okay? It would be to, to echo this word in our hearts daily. Enough. This was the word that Adam and Eve could not Take in. This is the word that so many people in Orange County Day cannot take in. And so I think that the practice and the habit and the discipline would be to wake up every morning, okay, and to start your day with this posture. Thank you. Thank you, Jesus, that what? Thank you, Jesus, that it's enough. That no matter what this day holds, thank you that it's enough. Thank you mainly that you are enough, that your grace, that your mercy, that your love for me is enough, that I actually don't need other things, that if all I have is you, I have enough. Thank you that you're enough. And then thank you that your provision for me today will be enough. It may not be all that I want, but it will absolutely be enough for for me to fulfill the purpose that you have for me today. Thank you that is enough. And then to end the day and to go back over the day, whatever happened in our circumstances that day, to be able to say to Jesus, Jesus, thank you. It was enough. You were enough. Your provision for me was enough. I think that is the secret of being content. Let's pray. So Lord, uh, as we think about Paul's example Um, We come to you as as your children today, and and we do confess, we we confess that that our hearts are so often restless, that so often it's not enough, and we're constantly searching for the more, whether it's wealth, or friends, or health, or freedom, or recognition, or any other thing. Our hearts are so often restless for the more. Lord, in the midst of our restlessness, thank you. Thank you that you look down on us with love and with your generosity. Thank you that you provide what we need. Thank you that you are what we need and you're enough for us. And then thank you for all the amazing gifts that you give. We are so blessed with resource and freedom and friendship and health. So blessed. And so we just give you thanks for that. So grateful. Teach us to be content. Teach our hearts to just take that all in and be satisfied, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.